0: First Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 21. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favour of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honour, but we in disrepute. Till the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labour working with our hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For, lo, you have countless guides in Christ. You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, now find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God
1: we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 what an incredible passage because what it does it turns right upside down our view of what successful ministry is and successful being a Christian is it turns it right upside down because one of the problems was that those in Corinth and we've been working through this letter of Paul this ancient letter of Paul to the Corinthians what they imagined to be success what looked like success what looked like prowess spiritual prowess was completely the opposite to what they should have been thinking, completely the opposite to what it was in reality. They thought that up here was the place to be spiritually. They thought that the minister or the preacher or the teacher or the pastor or the evangelist should be up here. When actually Paul says, no, they should be down there. They are, in fact, down there. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4 turns upside down our expectations as to what ministry, successful ministry looks like and successful Christianity looks like. While do we pray as we get into it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not lie to us, that you do not keep back from us what we should know, that you've told us everything that we need to know in order to relate to you properly. Thank you that we have it here in this book. Lord, we thank you for this book. We pray that as we love these words, we may love you. Thank you that these words lead to you. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would deepen our love, knowledge. Lord, that we would have a right view of ourselves, a right view of you, that we would measure ourselves by your word and not by the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is success? How do you measure it? If you're a successful sports person, a successful football manager, you'll measure it by your trophy cabinet. You will count the number of trophies or maybe the management above you will count the number of trophies and if there are loads, you'll keep your job. If there are very few and if they're all kind of leaving you, you will lose your job. What do you count as success in terms of politics? If you're an MP and you're wanting to get elected, well, your success will be measured by the number of votes you get. Indeed, whether you get elected or not. A successful businessman, his or her success will be told in the amount of pound signs that there are in front of their bank balance. What about unsuccessful businessmen? unsuccessful sports managers, unsuccessful MPs? Well, they will be the failures, won't they? So there'll be zero in the bank balance. There'll be zero votes in the ballot box. There'll be zero whatever else you might think. We measure success in that way. How do you measure success as you look at Christian ministers, evangelists, Pastors, teachers, us. How do you measure success? How do you measure what being a successful Christian is? What was going on in Corinth was that they weren't believing a false gospel. They weren't believing lies about God. It wasn't that someone had come and said, No, God doesn't exist. It wasn't that someone had come and said, Well, Jesus didn't die for you, that Jesus didn't exist. It wasn't that someone had come and said, it's all a load of rubbish. No, that wasn't the problem in Corinth. The problem was in Corinth that they were filtering what they had heard, the message from Paul, who'd planted the church in Corinth. They were filtering that through all of the values and all of the ideas and all of the measurements of the world around them. What were some of those measurements? We've thought about this over the last couple of weeks. Some of the measurements were, in terms of success, how good a speaker are you? And if the speaker was really good, if they had loads of people following them, well, that's the measure of success for the Corinthian Christians. They would follow, they would listen to the successful speaker, that is the one who had the most persuasive language. The great rhetoric of the orator, and that's how they measured success. They measured success in the number of followers that the, well, the authors and the leaders and the politicians and the thinkers and the philosophers around them, they measured success by the number of people that those speakers persuaded. And they thought, in terms of Paul, well, how do we measure his success? First of all, how do we measure his message? his message was one of a crucified Christ. And his followers were those who were weak. Paul himself was weak. He had a weak disposition. He was not very attractive. And the Corinthian Christians viewed success in those terms. And what they wanted from someone like Paul was a successful message, an attractive message. Not a difficult message. Not one that would cause a bit of pain in believing. though would cause a bit of, well, embarrassment in terms of reputation if you followed it. That's how they measured success. And unfortunately, it was to their detriment. Because what they had done with the gospel, if the Christian gospel was this way, they had entirely turned it upside down. And what had happened, in effect, was that it was empty of any kind of power or any kind of impact or any kind of eternal thrust. And how did that manifest itself? Well, we see how it manifests itself in how Paul describes his success in contrast to what the Corinthians viewed as success. And we're in chapter 1, sorry, we're not in chapter 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Let's remind ourselves. Verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is what they were. That is Paul and his friends who are preaching the same message as Paul. This is how, Corinthians, you should look at me. This is how you should understand me. This is how you should build a framework around Whenever you think of me. This is the framework you should apply to me. This is how you measure my success because number one, I am a servant of you, Corinthians, or the world around you, or the community in which we're placed, or, no, Christ. Paul says... I am a servant of Christ. Now that's hugely significant. Because if you were filling in that particular blank, for me, I guess you'd write my description, job description, something like: well, Trevor and Peter and all the ministry interns are here to serve the community in which they're placed. I mean, look at the need around here. Look at the need down in the Holy Land. Massive needs. And you lot. You ought to be serving them and those needs. I mean, you ought to be sorting out, for example, the curate, Bishop. It's always very long, isn't it? That's what you're there for, Trevor. That's why we pay you. That's why you live in the big fancy house that you live in. That's why you have your title, Reverend Johnson. That's why, so on and so forth. You are a servant of the community, or you're a servant of the congregation. So I'm here, you need to meet my needs. Of course you must. I mean, that's what you've been called to do, isn't it? You're here to serve me. Well, how does Paul view that? Does he think of himself as a servant of the community. Does he think of himself as a servant to the world around the church of Corinth? Does he think of himself as a servant to the Corinthians? Well, yes, he does, of course, think that he serves the world around them, the world there of Corinth. But primarily, number one, firstly, who is he a servant of? It's Jesus Christ. I am a servant of Jesus Christ, says Paul. He's the one who directs me. He's the one who guides me. He's the boss, not you lot. The thing is, if you lot, Paul says, if you lot were my bosses, what would you have me doing? Well, you would have me certainly not preaching that message of Christ and him crucified. Chapter one, chapter two, do you remember all that stuff? Just cast your eye up, have a look. Have a look, chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 1. When I came, I came to you, brothers, did not come with proclaiming to... Sorry, I'll say it again. And I, chapter 2, verse 1, when I came to you, brothers, did not come in proclaiming to you the best testimony of God with lo- lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message did not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So you Corinthians, if you were my bosses, you would have me not coming with Jesus Christ and him crucified. You would have me not coming with implausible words of wisdom. Sorry, plausible words of wisdom. You would have me coming with lofty speech, intelligent argument. You'd have me coming with skills of oratory because that's how you value things. So no, the successful minister does not serve the congregation, does not serve the world around the congregation, does not meet the needs in that direction. Rather, the service is of Jesus, Jesus Christ. So number one, successful ministry serves Christ. Successful ministry, number two, faithfully stewards the great mysteries of God. That is, that there's no modification or altering or changing or cutting away or going beyond what God has given him. That is, the successful, faithful minister to steward So I can't get up here and make up my own message for you. I can't pretend that God has spoken to me audibly or otherwise in my heart, in my head, on a piece of paper dropped down from heaven. I can't pretend that I've got another message for you outside of what's in here. If I do, I am not a servant of Jesus Christ, rather I'm a servant of myself. If I do, I am not faithfully stewarding what Christ has given me to speak. Have a look, verse number two. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they should be found faithful. That's the measure, that's how you assess the ministry. Is what is preached, is what is claimed, is what is said, either in one-to-ones or publicly, one-to-tens or one-to-hundreds or one-to-thousands, is what is said, is it true? Is it actually true? Has God said it? There are loads of ministers, even in this city, who will claim that God has said this or has said that, but you will not find it in the Bible. There are loads of them. And you could, if you wanted to, you could find them, whatever you fancy. You'll find someone who flatters you. You'll find someone who builds you up in a particular direction, makes you feel special, makes you feel unique, just like everyone else. You could find any sort of preacher, teacher, teacher. Messenger, is that the mark of successful ministry? That you flatter and wow a crowd? Sometimes we do measure success in those terms, don't we? Sometimes we do kind of, you know, place numbers and give them a significant, like, measurement in terms of our success or ministries. It's interesting, whenever ministers get together, could you imagine a minister's gathering? How boring it is. Minister's gathering, whenever they, it'll always be, well, how many people, how, how many people would you get, say, on an average Sunday? And it's always exaggerated. It's always, in some cases, doubled <laughs> or rounded up to the nearest thousand or something like that. Because we are so obsessed with numbers, we're so obsessed. Imagining that that is the way to measure faithful ministry, successful ministry, by the numbers who are involved. Now, we're grateful, so grateful to God, that God has blessed us in our church family. We are so grateful, but is that our measurement? Does this mean that we're faithful because we've got lots of people coming
0: along?
1: No. You don't measure faithfulness in that direction with those stats Not at all. We've only done two verses, and there's about 18 more verses to go, but we'll be much quicker now. All right. (laughs) How do you measure ministry? First of all, who's a minister? A servant of Christ. What is a minister? A steward of the mysteries of Christ. If that ministry is not stewarding faithfully, clearly, proclaiming, all that God has said in his word, then discount his ministry. Stop listening to her. That's faithful ministry. And the question was around Paul's ministry. The question was around not only Paul, but also Apollos. Do you remember Paul and Apollos? Paul says, or he's written, I have planted, Apollos has watered, but God has given the growth. Do you remember those two characters? Apollos was the one who came in after Paul to build the church in Corinth. He was the one who kind of dealt with some of the issues that arose after Paul had left. So if you turn over to verse, uh, in my Bible you have to turn over, if you go to verse number six, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? They were claiming all sorts of things. And what they were doing very typically, as the Corinthians were known to do, was to fall in behind a leader. We saw this in chapter one. We've heard echoes of it in chapter two and chapter three. And here Paul is taking himself, one of the leaders, alongside Apollos, one of the other leaders, and saying, look, I've applied all this To myself, I've applied this also to Apollos, and what have I found? Faithfulness. I found faithfulness in our stewardship of the mysteries. I found faithfulness in our service of the gospel. He's applied all of this stuff, but if you look in the few verses before, he says, So what? He says, Don't judge until Jesus Christ judges. Stop. Judging the ministry based on wrong measurements of success or otherwise. Look at verse number four. Sorry, verse number three. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. What was going on in Corinth? They were jumping to conclusions. They were looking at Paul and saying, Boring. They were looking at Apollos and saying, also boring, ineffective, because what you're doing, Apollos, is essentially regurgitating the same weak, pathetic, horrible stuff that Paul was preaching. That is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's just weak. That is unappealing. That is boring. That's just pathetic, Paul and Apollos. And they were jumping to conclusions before the time. For who is the one Who judges? Who is the one who measures? Who is the one that sees everything, including motivation? Who is the one that sees everything? It is God. But the Corinthians were jumping on ahead of God, jumping to conclusions and saying, We're not going to follow him because his ministry is boring and weak and pathetic. It's unsuccessful because there aren't thousands following. That's what they were doing. And Paul says, you've jumped on ahead. You've gone too far. That's why in verse 6, I've applied these things to myself, myself and Apollos for your benefit, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. This is another thing that they were doing. They were going beyond the Bible. They were going beyond what was written down here. I guess that some of you may have been tempted to go beyond the Bible where you've looked for messages from God beyond the pages of the Bible. That you've sought a voice or someone has come to you with a a so-called word from the Lord and it becomes authoritative for you But it is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, going beyond what is written. Don't do that, he says. Because God is the judge, and he will judge in his time. And every ministry and every minister will face God's judgment. God will be the one who assesses the ministry. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant to the faithful servants. If they've built with the right materials, we saw this in chapter three last week. If they've built with the right materials, God will judge. So that's the successful Christian minister. How do you judge them? What's your criteria? Is it God's criteria? What about the successful Christian? I don't know how many of you in the room this evening are Christians. I don't know whether you've said sorry to God and trusted in Jesus' death for your sins. I don't know why you're living with Jesus as your ruler, as your king. But how do you measure all of that? What the Corinthians were doing was that they thought they had completely arrived. They thought that they had everything that there was to be given. They'd forgotten that there's a now in the Christian life and a not yet. That there's some things reserved for heaven. They thought they'd received absolutely everything, that there wasn't anything left to receive. They thought they were living the most spiritual of lives. But actually, what they were doing was living just worldly lives. Have a look at verse 8. This is where Paul gets a bit sarky, right? I don't know if you're sensitive to sarcasm. I don't know how you react to it. Apparently, I'm, my children tell me I'm quite sarcastic. I tell them they're quite sarcastic. And then they'll say, oh, really? Like that. That's sarcasm. This is what they say. <laughs> oh, no, it's not what they say. This is what the Corinthians say or believe. Verse Verse 8. Already you have all you want. And this is Paul's sarcasm. Oh, you've achieved it, Paul says. You can imagine if he's standing here preaching to them. He said, Oh, you've achieved it. <laughs> That's it. Already, oh, you've got everything you want. You've received it all. I'm sure he would do that voice. Oh, then the next bit. Oh, already you've become rich. Oh, look how big you are. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Without us, oh, you've become kings. You see, he's been utterly sarcastic with them because they imagine themselves to be further on than they actually are. They imagine themselves to have everything spiritually speaking. Already have become kings. And that, have you a look? And that you would that you did dream, so that we might share the rule with you. You can hear his voice. He's been really sarky here, isn't he? Listen to the successful Christian-like life as Paul understands it. And it is the opposite to how they understand it. They thought the successful Christian life was brilliance in spiritual gifts, in spiritual experience, in in wise words and cleverness. That's what they thought it was all about. But actually, Paul says, no, it's about death. Have a look, verse number nine. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men, everything and all of creation sees exactly what's happened to the apostles. This is Paul. This is Apollos. The other servants, faithful servants, us apostles, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Instead of being up there, living in a palace, occupying riches and becoming kings, the reality is I'm at the bottom of the pile. In fact, I'm on death row, Paul is saying. And I'm an apostle. I'm in death row. Everything sees that I'm in death row. I'm heading to death. Paul says, and that's success as a Christian. Verse number um, ten. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. More sarcasm. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honour, but we in disrepute. To the present are we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands, when reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Do you want to see what the successful Christian life looks like? This. Do you hear Paul's sarcasm as to how they imagine themselves? They've become kings. They've attained this rule that's promised to them for the end of time. They've attained it now. They've become rich, spiritual riches. They've got it all, they imagine. But instead, Paul says, no, you are imagining yourselves to have something that you don't really have. In fact, what you do have is opposite to how you should be. You should be suffering like Christ, suffering like me, the scum of the earth. The word here really is, you know, the stuff that's on your foot if you walk through the street and that you have to scrape off your foot. That's how Paul is describing himself. And that's spiritual riches. That's spiritual success. That's true spirituality as far as Paul is concerned. That's being truly Christian. The scum of the earth, in contrast to those who imagine themselves to be great and majestic and kingly. And you see the reaction to all of this? All of this thing? When you see the contrast between him and the other, those who are engaged in preaching the gospel. You see what happens? Verse number 11 To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. So we've got no food, we've got no drink. That's how impoverished they are. In total contrast to the values and the measures of the Corinthian church. Total contrast. We're weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor, but we're in disrepute. The absolute opposite. Verse number 12. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, what do they do? Do they punch back? When reviled... We bless. When persecuted, do they give up and go to the quiet life? Do they retire to a seaside resort because it's too much, that Christianity thing? No. They endure. When slandered, they entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And this is true greatness. This is true spirituality. Receiving willingly the suffering and the persecution of the world around them. And that was not sweet music to their ears in Corinth at all. In fact, that made them run away from true Christianity, from true spirituality, because they thought, no, that's too uncomfortable. That's clearly the opposite of power. That's clearly the opposite of prestige. That's clearly the opposite of. Their values that they had imbibed. So, how does Paul speak to them? He speaks lovingly, he speaks as a pastor, as a father to a child. Verse number 14. I do not write these things to you, Corinthian Christians, those, you've got it wrong, Corinthian Christians, to make you ashamed, but not to make you feel stupid, not to make you feel bad. I I write these things to make you not to feel ashamed, but, verse 14b, to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you, though you have countless guides in Christ, that is a, a bit of a dig, of course, to the, the values of the Corinthian mindset. They had lots of leaders. They had lots of people around them. Some of them, they're actually not mentioned by name, but they're certainly hinted at in chapter 1. They were following the leaders. They were following the great philosophers and the great scribes and the great wise men of the world around them. While you have many guides... You don't have many fathers. There's a contrast between your father and your lecturer, isn't there? I don't know if you're a student, or those of you who aren't students, you'll remember back to school to your teacher. You can see the attitude and the approach of the professional teacher, the professional lecturer. There was no love, there was no affection, there was no warmth. Maybe there was, that would be an unusual case. It was just professionalism and distance. And there was expectations, come on, get that assignment in, come on, turn up on time, come on, pass your exam. That was the intention, really, between kind of the, the, the formal lectures, certainly, that I had my experience of in the, in the academy back a long time ago, and even bosses in jobs that I used to have. It was kind of fulfill, 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 pass your exams, do a good day's work. And that, that's a different sort of attitude than a father would have with you. A, a father would lovingly hold you and hold your hand. And if you fall, pick you up, dust you off. If, if you cut yourself, the father would lovingly get a plaster and put it on a father would stroke the head and stroke the back and say, come on, come on, come on, son. And that's the contrast Paul draws out here, doesn't it? The Corinthians were loving the lecture type, the the guide type, the professor type. They were valuing that thing as opposed to valuing Paul's input, Paul's impact on their lives because he was a father to them. He loved them. You see this? Verse number 15. For the, though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Jesus says, call no man father. Remember that? He said that in Matthew's gospel. Call no man father. That's why it's a dangerous thing to call a minister Father. Jesus says, do not call anyone father. But here we have in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul describing himself as a father to the Corinthians. It's an entirely different thing. I urge you, then, verse number 16, I urge you, then, be imitators of me. (laughs) Be an imitator of me. Why? Because he's the scum of the earth. Because he's the refuse of the world. Because he's the dirt on the shoe. You know that stuff that you kind of you find a step or something, you do that with. The stuff that falls off your shoe. That's Paul. Be like me. Be like me, Paul is saying. Verse number seventeen. I'm an example, verse 16, and here's another example, because he's following me, verse number 17, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some of you are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. He's throwing down a challenge. He said, listen, I'm going to come and I'm going to really grasp how mature you are, how rich in Christ you really are, how your progress is, how, like, is there any real progress and meaningful, true spirituality amongst you all? That's what he's doing. That's what he's wanting to find out, wanting to ascertain, because it doesn't sound like it. They are talking a lot about it. Words, 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 words. They're talking themselves up. They're talking about those who guide them and lead them, and they're not talking about Jesus Christ and His gospel. As I said earlier on, it's not that they've rejected the true gospel, it's not that they've rejected Christ and Him crucified, it's not that they've denied that Jesus died for them, but actually they've made it completely empty completely useless, completely in vain because of the measures that they were applying to Paul's ministry and successful ministry and true authentic ministry and how they measure true spirituality, being truly godly, being truly Christian, being truly one of Jesus's. They thought it was this, but actually Paul says, no, what's this, and they talked, and they talked, and they talked, and their words just multiplied, and multiplied, and multiplied, but have a look. Verse number 20, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The power that raises people from the dead, because it raised Jesus from the dead the power of God's Word, the power of God's eternal gospel, the power of God's enduring Word, which is the power to save. The message of Christ crucified is the power to save you and me forever, eternally, beyond any doubt, with all certainty and definite, definiteness. Is that a word? Definite, de- whatever it is. You can be sure if you're a Christian, you can be sure that you are safe. You can be sure. Uh, Jeremiah expressed this brilliantly earlier on, that you can be sure that heaven is yours, not to fear hell, not to fear God's judgment towards condemnation, but rather to fear God towards commendation. That is God's power to rescue even you, to rescue you from hell. That's why God, out of his great love and mercy and plan, sent Jesus to die for you. And instead of taking that message and twisting it and bending it or viewing it in a particular lens and a particular thing and obscuring it and twisting it and making it irrelevant, really, to your life, live on it. Live off it. Live like it become the scum of the earth, become the refuse of the world, enter the procession, the triumphal procession at the very end. You know the triumphal procession? Triumphal procession in ancient Rome was whenever the Caesar would conquer. The Caesar would conquer another country. He would make sure that he had the spoils of that other country, and he would enter Rome, and right behind him were all of the people he had conquered, and right at the very end were the slaves and the generals. They were the ones that were going to be thrown in to get killed as they entered the auditorium, as they entered the Colosseum. They were the ones, the refuse of the world, the scum of the earth, The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, just our gibberish and gossip and yeah, but in power, real power, that will change you for eternity. Do you know it? Are you living under it and by it? Do, do you know it? Or are your measures completely wrong? Do you think it's this? No, Paul says, it's this. The only way is down in the Christian life. The only way is down as we measure Christian ministry. Do you hear it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so easily... And we so quickly and we so readily measure things the entirely the wrong way, measuring your power by the world's standards, measuring your message by the world's standards, measuring your gospel with entirely the, the wrong measurements. We just do it so easily, so readily. Please forgive us for that please may we love you and relate to you as you would have us relate to you. That we would measure ministry by service of Christ and faithfulness to his gospel. That we would grow spiritually by embracing suffering in great gratitude for the death of Christ on the cross for our sins. Father, we thank you that your word clears up many confusions in our mind. May our lives be built on it. In Jesus' name, amen.